0: Well, good morning. Hey, it's great to be back. Uh, Jane and I had a good time away, and uh, with family and a few friends in between, and uh, we're, we're glad to be back in the saddle here. And you know, sometimes how that goes, vacations are never long enough, right? None of you feel that, ever feel that way? Are you kidding me? Well, am I weird? I don't know, something's, I'm going away again, I guess, I know I, anyway. Uh, good to be with you, and uh, welcome to Heritage. If you're a uh, guest with us just visiting, we're glad to have you here. And as Scott already mentioned, be sure to stop out at the Welcome Center, right straight out these middle doors, and um, uh, introduce yourself. We have a gift for you. We'd love to get, the, uh, get to know you, have the opportunity to meet you as well. We're going to jump right back into our study in the book of Jude. Um, and so uh, I got to ask you a question as we begin to think about that, so what have you learned from the past? I don't mean the past messages in the book of Jude, but what have you learned in the past? Maybe history, if you would look at it, but uh, as I think about the past, uh, I could share with you a few lessons um, that I've learned uh, a lot over the years, but I I've learned the difference between a Chicago police officer and a parking lot attendant. Now, I had that opportunity in my past. Uh, I was driving a bus full of our high school students. We'd gone up to Chicago, and uh, we were gonna go see, actually, it was an indoor soccer game. I think they called them the Chicago Sting, and out front of the bus, or the, of the Chicago, Chicago Stadium, which is now called the United Center, Uh, I pull up, or I'm right out there, and there are guys standing out in the street all over the place with the neon vests and flashlights and flags and trying to wave everybody into their parking lot. That's what it was. Just lots full, and they're all different, and I'm trying to figure out how much they cost and what's... Well, in the middle of all that, there are police officers too. And, And I'm... You know, everybody tries to wave you in, in fact, almost get in front of the bus... Uh, to get you to go. Well, I had an idea where I wanted to go, and so you just kind of got to keep moving, almost like you run over one of those parking lot attendants so that you can go where you want to go. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm paying attention to all this, and I get this pound on the front of the bus, and I look down, and there's a Chicago police officer there waving his something at me, his flashlight or gun, or I don't think it was that, uh, uh fist arm yelling and and I stop he goes stop and I'm like yeah and so he comes around and I open the door and I look down and he said did you see me saying stop I said uh, and of course the bus is like you could hear a pin drop <laughs> they're wanting to know what I'm going to say and do and and so um I said uh I did officer but uh I thought you were a parking lot attendant. <laughs> I really did. And I, he says to me, "Do I look like a parking lot attendant?" Uh, <laughs> no, sir. And that was it. I, 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 so I've learned the difference. One of my, I could tell you. I, here, here's another one. I, I've learned never, never to ask if a woman is pregnant, <laughs> unless I first talk to my wife. <laughs> I learned that the hard way. Um, I've also learned about God's protection, a uh, guardian angels. We may make reference to that today. Uh, while driving a bus full of high school students on a snow-covered frontage road, out in the chicago area and, and these are a lot of my youth pastor stories because that 's where I really have learned a lot of lessons <laughs> and um, i don 't think we have anything like that here in northeastern Pennsylvania Frontage roads does anybody know what frontage roads are? yeah, some of you do they don't't I, don't th- I was trying to think if i'd seen them out here anywhere and, and i don 't think so but but out in the Midwest they have the the, the roads that run along the interstate, so you have uh, we had interstate fifty five that went from where we lived up to Chicago, and on either side were these frontage roads. They were parallel to the interstate, but their own separate two-lane kind of a country road, and they would join some of the more main regular roads to one another and and to get somewhere. So you would go uh, up and down this frontage road, and it was usually a bridge over the interstate, and then you would kind of go along, and you're paralleling, the interstate, but you're not on it, and then you come up until you get to the point you make a turn because then it goes up to the bridge, and then you go back down the other side, and you can continue on. Well, we're Christmas caroling. It's Christmas Eve. It's a snow-covered road. It was cold, and and I'm driving the bus, and we're having a good time. I mean, it's Christmas Eve, and and we're going to go Christmas carol at this family that lives out of ways, and and we're driving along, and everybody's talking and having a good time, and I'm kind of getting mesmerized by the traffic on 55. There's not a lot of it, but I'm looking at the the headlights. I really don't know what I was doing, except all of a sudden I realized that the frontage road was curving and going up, and I thought, oh, no, I am really in trouble, and I hit the brakes and turned to go, and seriously... Our kids are falling on the floor in the bus. And you hear it's like in the movies, one of those screaming things. And everything is going in slow motion. And I thought, we're dead. Somebody is going to get hurt here. This is bad. And somehow we made it around that curve and then up to the stop sign and stopped. And I was like, wow. And I am convinced to this day that God with one of his angels, reached down and grabbed that bus and turned it around the corner and pulled it up to the stop sign without us wrecking. I've learned about God's protection when I don't pay attention. That was an amazing thing. I could go on, but lessons from the past. Now, there are more important lessons, I have to admit, from the past than facing an angry Chicago police officer whom I misidentified as a parking lot attendant however the past is critical and when we talk about remembering the past it's not just critical but it's something that we're told in scripture we need to do in fact it's something that over the years there have been all kinds of historical individuals who've made statements about the history and so here's a point to ponder Uh, You've probably heard this maybe from Winston Churchill, but he said this back in 1948. He was actually quoting somebody else who'd said something similar. Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We need to learn from history. And uh, history never repeats itself. We, We sometimes talk about that, but every single historical moment is distinct. It's one of a kind. We understand that. However, we must learn to become students of what has happened in the past so that we can learn from our mistakes so that we do not repeat them. And so when Winston Churchill says those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, that would be true for you and I as those who know Jesus Christ as well. But Paul regularly talked to followers of Jesus about learning from their past. He was always talking to the church in the New Testament, challenging them to look back at their history, the history of the nation of Israel. He wanted them to be reminded of what they were not to do because usually it was a reminder of something that Israel had done that didn't please God. And Paul was bringing that to their attention so that they wouldn't do the same thing, so that their faith would remain strong and true. And as a result, their light as a believer would shine brightly. And part of that was they needed, as they looked back in history, to see the hand of God, to see the person and the presence of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, Paul tells us there as he's talking to the church in Corinth, now these things occurred as examples. And he's talking about some of the Old Testament history that he had just reviewed for them in the first five verses. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did, as God's people, as the nation of Israel, had set their hearts on evil things. And he talked more about that then. But as we look at the book of Jude today, uh, I want you to be thinking about what have you learned from the past? I want you to grab hold of this truth if we're going to contend for the faith. And that's the theme that we've set up for the book of Jude contend for the faith if we're going to contend for the faith we must learn from the past paul has laid out in first corinthians and other places the history of the nation of israel so that churches then and today can gain insight and understanding and learn from the past if we're going to contend for the faith and that's what we've been talking about We must learn from the past. So please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Jude, all the way near the end of your Bible, just before the book of Revelation, uh, page 860 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. If you don't have a Bible and would want to have a copy in your hand, it's there, or of course your phone, tablet, whatever it may be. But I want you to follow with me as I read, starting at verse 8, the book of Jude And I'm going to read for you verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. And this is what Jude says. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people... He's talking about the apostates, the false teachers. Uh These ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings... But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Verse 11, Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Now, as we think about that this morning, Jude picks up in verse 8, and as we left off from there, he says, in the very same way. And he refers to, he says, these, those who dream, or we would say these dreamers, who, if you remember, and look back in your Bibles if you want, to verse 4, Verse 4 talks about those who secretly slipped in among you. Remember we talked about those who stealthily came in, those who who were there but the, the church had no idea who they were, that they were false teachers because they looked just like everybody else. It's the old wolves in sheep's clothing scenario. Those who secretly slipped in, he he is again calling them ungodly people, those false teachers. He says they were committing the same sins. These false teachers are committing the same sins as those, uh, at least in a general way, not specifically exactly. It doesn't mean, as we talked about some of those specific sins, we looked back to the nation of Israel as they refused to believe God and enter the promised land. We looked, and he talks about that in verses 5 to 7. The fallen angels who sinned against God left their position of authority. And it talked about the people of Sodom Gomorrah. Not the specific sin, but in general, sinning. In similar ways. And we looked back at that. You can go back and listen if you want online to find out what that was. But he's reminding them of his examples from Israel's history, the past, so that they, the churches that Paul or that Jude was writing to, and so that you and I today, our churches, can benefit from God's word. And he's writing so that we can recognize false teachers so that the church can see who they are, understand, avoid them, learn from them, not the false teachings that they're giving, but how to stay away, how to stand against them, and ultimately, how to stand for the faith. We have to be able to recognize the enemy if we're going to stand against the enemy. If we're going to fight the enemy, we have to know who we're fighting. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but... Uh, he calls them. He calls the current false teachers dreamers. He said the the those who on the strength of their dreams. One translation says it this way: the ESV, in fact, relying on their dreams. Another one says they claim authority from their dreams. You see, these false teachers would claim to have had dreams, visions of sort. Uh, A visionary experience. Uh, And and, and on the basis of that dream, they claimed it was authority from God. They claimed God had spoken to them and told them what they were to be doing and to to influence people that way. Deuteronomy chapter 13, and we're not going to go there this morning. If you want to check out uh, that, Deuteronomy 13, and find out just because a person has a vision doesn't mean it's from God. We tend to think today, well, I, 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 got this, I got this word from God. Oh, you do. Well, Deuteronomy 13 tells you how to know whether it's of God or not. But as we talk about this, uh, dreamers, and he says, these false teachers, the ones that are, uh, that are uh, infiltrated into the church there that Jude was talking to, he says, number one, he says, they pollute their own bodies, verse 8. He's talking about the sexual immorality of the false teachers. We we looked at that in verses 5 to 7, but he's, he's kind of reviewing that and saying they were involved in teaching and proclaiming and thinking of the freedom for sexual immorality that they could have. They secondly reject authority. Now, yes, that would be human authority. There's no question. But more importantly, I think in the context... He's talking about the authority of God. He's talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. He says they've rejected. False teachers who aren't teaching the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ are rejecting authority, the authority of God. And that word authority that's used here comes from the same root word as the word Lord, master, And so that's why I believe that the authority that they're rejecting is that of God in their lives. Remember back again to verse 4 when Jude was talking about those false teachers and he said at the very end of verse 4 he's talking about those who deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. So he said they're rejecting that authority. He's summarizing here what these false teachers that have infiltrated the church are like and then he says... They heap abuse on celestial beings. What in the world is that? I don't know if you've read through as you've been reading ahead and encourage you to to read it a number of times each week so that you're uh, aware of, of what's going on, but you may have come to that and say, I have no idea what Jude is talking about here, that they heap abuse on celestial beings That word heap abuse is really one, and the idea is speak evil of, to blaspheme. Some translations may have that, blaspheme celestial authorities. But here, uh, we find out that the word is glories or dignities. They speak evil of, they slander glories, glorious ones. And the most common understanding of these celestial beings or these glorious ones would be angels. The bigger question really would be good angels or evil angels. Good angels or evil angels. Now Jude earlier in the text had already talked about evil angels. Had talked about those angels who came down out of heaven, who rebelled against God, Who some of whom were were sentenced to hell and are there locked away until the end of time when God sent Satan and all the evil angels into the lake of fire for good forever. So would it be that? Would it be those evil angels? Well, verse 9 would seem to indicate that it was evil angels. You say, what? Well, look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Jude says, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, and did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. He said, That's not helping me understand verse 8. That's adding more confusion. What in the world? What is all this? Celestial beings? Michael, the archangel, is arguing with the devil? What? What? Where's that? Well, this is the only place in Scripture that we haven't mentioned. There are some historical books that, that, that talk about this. Some, some historians, Jewish historians like Josephus and others, have written about this. But there's nothing else in Scripture, in the Bible, that tells us what this is. But we could say, and as we're talking about, if you wanted to look back and or write this down and, and go to it yourself, you'd find in Deuteronomy chapter 34, the last chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses was writing about this, and it's there, and he said that, uh, that when Moses died, uh, or he was writing about himself, but when Moses died, his body, God buried him. Nobody knows where Moses' body is buried. You say, well... What's that about? Well, the, the idea we don't, again, exactly know, but Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. And uh, it, where should it be buried? And the, the, the indication would be possibly that, that the devil wanted to grab hold of Moses' body somehow and, and not let it be unknown where it was buried so that he could use people in false worship. Oh, that's not something new, right? I mean, if you think about Mary, many today have totally taken that completely out of Scripture, and we worship, some worship Mary. Well, God never intended that as the mother of Jesus. I found something this week I'd never seen before. In fact, I, brought, I read it to Jane, and I said, Have you ever heard of this? Have you seen this before? But back In 2 Kings chapter 18, write that down, 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, when Hezekiah, who became the king of Judah, went to clean up the country of Judah. He he was now king in charge, and there had been all kinds of idol worship and everything else, and he was going to clean up the country and, and make sure that God was who was worshiped. And and one of the things that he did is he tore down the Asherah poles and all the poles to Baal and all the worship places and all that. And it talks about how he destroyed the bronze serpent. The bronze serpent was what Moses had used that God told him to make to stop the plague because of the disobedience in Israel. You could read about that back in the Old Testament further. And, and yet, what had happened after that was it had become an idol for some of the people of the nation of Israel. And King they were worshiping that. And so, King Hezekiah destroyed it. You could check that out and see. That, that may very well be what was going on here. But the, but the, the involvement here is that uh, there were things, and, and in this argument, we're told that Um, Michael the archangel refused to condemn the devil for the devil's slander in some way of Moses. And rather than him rebuking the devil, said, the Lord will judge you and rebuke you. So I don't think it's evil angels and to say all that. It may fit the context. Michael is talking with the devil. But I have a hard time with referring to evil angels is the word that's used there in the Hebrews for celestial beings being glorious ones. I don't know how glorious ones could be a reference to evil angels. I think the fact that they're good angels fits much better. You say, well, why would the devil want to slander or why would these false teachers also, because that's what Jude is likening them to, why would they want to slander the good angels? I think real simple, and and you could dig into this and study it on your own. There's not a real clear answer, but the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 that God's angels are ministering spirits sent forth to serve those who will be heirs of salvation. And I think that that we talk about these guardian angels that God has, that he uses to minister to those of us who know Jesus Christ. And I think there was that slander there. I came across something else. I don't know if you've ever read in Scripture how that angels were involved in the delivering of the Old Testament law to Moses. You ever read that? Check out Acts chapter 7, verses uh, 37 and 38. Acts chapter 7 verse 53, let me read this to you and and, and we'll leave it at that because that's not the, the real focus of our message this morning, but it's there in the text and I want to give you something so you can understand and move on. But in uh, Acts chapter 7 verse 52, uh, Stephen is talking, he's about to be stoned for his faith. And he says, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. He's talking to the Jews that are about to stone him. He's proclaiming the gospel. Verse 53, he says, you, he's talking to the Jews, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. You say, I thought God gave the law to Moses. The law was given through angels. Check out Hebrews 2 and verse 2. Check out Galatians 3 19 and do a little study on your own. And you tell me what sometime what you think the the celestial beings, what's going on, the angels. Why would the devil and and Michael the archangel be arguing about these good angels? Why would the devil be slandering these good angels? I think it was an act of. Irreverence and disrespect to the authority of God and what he was seeking to do with those good angels. But just as Satan, or just as Michael left the judgment of Satan to the Lord, he was saying, in the midst of all this, uh, the issue here, I think, is slander. So we would look at that immorality of false teachers, the rejection of authority by the false teachers, and slander. And the false teachers would slander the truth. They would slander truth tellers. They would slander the true teachers. They would slander the leadership of the church. We'll see more about that in just a bit. Look at verse 10. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand and the very things they do understand by instinct as irrational animals do will destroy them. The apostates, the false teachers criticize what they don't understand. They slander what they don't understand. But they will be destroyed by the very things that they do know. They argue and fight for immoral behavior. That will destroy them, is what Jude is saying. And so as we looked at those three things, these false teachers characterized by immorality both teaching it, promoting it, and encouraging others to participate in it. They are characterized by a rejection of God's authority. And if they were going to change the truth and get people to believe, they'd have to criticize God's authority, or why would people walk away from it? And then thirdly, they slandered the truth. They slandered God. They slandered those who God used, the angels, as part of his ministry to God's people. And then we get to verse 11, woe to them. Woe to these false teachers. Judah's pronouncing judgment on them. And he gives three examples of men who rejected God and his authority. He says, woe to them, verse 11, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. They have rejected God and his authority. And basically, he says, they're already under the condemnation of God. We looked at that when we were back in verse 3 or 4. Jude talked about those whose condemnation was already written about. Well, that's, that's these false teachers. And that's the examples that he's talking about. Cain, Balaam, and Korah were all destroyed because of the rejection of God's authority. But let me look at these examples just a little closer in the time that we have left this morning, because I want us to see again what it is that false teachers are trying to do in infiltrating our lives. If you know Jesus, they're coming after you. If you don't, they're going to do all they can, false teachers, to keep you from believing the truth. Do you struggle with the truth sometimes today? There's all kinds of questioning about the truth. Our truth, the Bible, is under fire probably like it's not. I I always hesitate to say like it's never been before because it has been forever. But it's certainly more so than it's been in, in most of our lifetimes today. I would say that the Bible is under attack. And those who proclaim the truth are under attack. And you're going to be made to feel like the truth that you were once taught isn't valid. It's out of date. It's old fashioned. It's old school. Things have changed. Culture is different. And, and we need to adjust what we think and believe accordingly. No, the truth of God doesn't change. But there are those who are doing their best to make us think that it is. That it's no longer relevant, that it's no longer applicable. And if you want to hold on to that, you may as well go back and live in 1900 because that's about what it's for. Sound about right to you? That's what's going on in our culture today. And so, as we look, first of all, the example of the way of Cain, and, and this is the story of Cain and Abel that Jude is referencing. Back in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, and what is the way of Cain as we talk about it? And you can look at these three scriptures and and check it out on your own, but the the Bible tells us that these false teachers have taken the way of Cain, or they have walked in the way of Cain. They have followed in the footsteps of Cain. What does that mean? Well, there are those that believe that Cain was judged because he didn't offer an animal sacrifice like Abel did. i That's true, but I don't believe that's the issue here. Uh, there's nowhere we've had before the story of Cain and Abel that God ever talked about sacrifices for them. You can say, well, what about Adam and Eve when he covered them with coats and fur when they were just covered in fig leaves. And okay, he did that, but we don't know all of what that means. The point being, other scriptures don't talk about the fact that there was a a bloodless sacrifice offered by Cain. And we're told that Abel offered the first fruits, the best of the sheep that he had. He offered the lamb to God, the best. There's nothing in that account either that tells us that it was a sin offering. They were just coming to worship God, I believe, in Genesis chapter 4. And so, I believe the issue at hand is simply this. God told Cain, Cain, if you'll just do what's right, I'll accept you. He just brought whatever he happened to have laying around. He also hated his brother in doing so. In fact, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, we read there that he didn't love into the context of what 1 John is talking about in chapter 3. Verse 11 says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be, verse 12, 1 John 3, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain was an unloving man who had no love for his brother. He was full of jealousy and envy. He was full of hatred and rage and anger. And he murdered his brother because he didn't measure up. And I think the way of Cain that we find here is further identified when we go to Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 6. And in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, we read this describing Cain and Abel, actually Abel, by faith, Hebrews eleven four, excuse me. Hebrews eleven four. uh, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Abel is singled out as a man of faith. There was nothing at all that indicated anything about faith in Cain's life. He was unloving. He was full of jealousy and envy, and he murdered his brother. And I think what's involved here, the way of Cain, is simply this, that uh, he, he was not a man who has, was worshiping God with love for one another in his heart and with, with uh, an attitude and action of faith in his life. In fact, we're told even by Josephus, this Jewish historian, that he had instructed Israel in wicked wicked practices. He was teaching them the kind of attitudes of not loving people, of not living by faith, of not walking by faith. And I think that's what the way of Cain is all about. And that's what false teachers would do today. They would seek to divide us. To get us not to love one another, they would seek to get us not to walk by faith, not to live a life of trusting God. And that's the way of Cain. The second illustration is that of Balaam. And you could take the time to read through Numbers chapter 22 to 25 and see Balaam was a, was a prophet of God. And Balak was a wicked king who tried to hire Balaam to, to put a curse on the nation of Israel. And you can read back any number of times how many times uh, Balak sent for Balaam to come and put a curse on the nation of Israel. He was going to pay him big money. And Balaam knew. He said, I can't do that. I can't do that. Sent, Sent the Balak king, his messengers, sent them back from where they'd come. And then Balak didn't get up. He sent them a second time. And Balaam said, I can't. Balaam, as God's spokesman, as God's prophet, would always go to God and say, God, what should I do? Well, the answer was obvious. Finally, God said, well, you can go with him, but you can't can't curse God's people. And if you read through the story, you find out that even in the midst of, Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam tried. He tried, but every time he went to curse Israel, God would turn it into a blessing. Well, finally... And and that's where you remember hearing about Balaam's donkey, as we would say, as scripture says, the ass that talked to Balaam when told him, What are you doing? And Balaam was like, What's going on here? That would be a message or two in itself, just to figure out what's going on there, but to rebuke Balaam for his disobedience to God. And what we have as far as Balaam's error is pursuing. Money, greedy gain for self, even to the point of walking away from the truth of God, cursing God's people so that he could make some money. Greed was involved in this. And Balaam turned from God. He rejected God's authority and he led Israel astray in so doing. And if you read Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16, which would then take you back to Numbers 25 as you read through this, you'll see that it gives Balaam the credit for the immorality that took over the nation of Israel in Numbers chapter 25. Balaam's way. He was greedy. He got paid to do what he did and caused Israel to sin and to walk away from God. That was it. The greed. Balaam's error. Thirdly, Korah's rebellion. They have been destroyed already. They're already condemned. Perished in Korah's rebellion is what the end of verse 11 says. If you were to go back to Numbers chapter 16, it would be one of those things. Do you see those those notes that pop up on on your television every once in a while that say, hey, the following content is... um, extremely violent or extremely dangerous or whatever it may be right so make sure you're an adult or whoever to watch this that would be over number numbers chapter 16 when you read about Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron ultimately against God I mean it's almost like you can't believe what you're reading I mean that. you gotta, you got to go back and read that because here's what's happening. It's a graphic and appalling picture of Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron and ultimately against God, against God's appointed leadership. Korah questions, why should anybody listen to Moses and Aaron? We're just as, we have just as much power and authority as Moses and Aaron do. And so Moses challenged and said, okay. He said, we're going to get here tomorrow. And, and, if, and if all these people die normal deaths, then you'll know that Korah was right. But if all these people, and the moment we gather together and God is with us, if all these people are swallowed up into hell, we'll know that God has put Aaron and I in charge Well, they gather together the next day. And if you've never read the story, I don't mean to be the, you know, break the story for you, but the ground opens up and God swallows up into hell Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and 250 false priests who wanted to offer sacrifices to God. They then knew who. God's leadership was. Korah's rebellion is questioning. The false teachers, the apostates in the churches will question, create doubt amongst God's leadership in the church. That's what Judah's warning them about. That's what they were doing. And the false teachers were challenging God's people. No, don't follow the God-appointed leadership uh, uh, in your church. Do your own thing. Follow us because we have every bit as much right to be in charge. After all, we've had a vision. We know what God wants. And he's likening that to Korah who was swallowed up by God as they led others away. I think part, the worst part of Korah's rebellion, the worst part of Balaam's error, the worst part of the way of Cain wasn't that those individuals were destroyed, but that they led others away from God along with themselves. And Korah led others away. Even after God swallowed up with the earth, the earth opened up and swallowed up Korah, Dathan, and of and the 250. The next day, God's people, the nation of Israel, is complaining. Moses, you killed our people. And what happened? A plague broke out. And another 13 or 14,000 people were killed until Moses and Aaron ran through the midst of them and stopped the plague. It's almost like, you got to be kidding me. I, folks, you say, what in the world are these teachers? Well, false teachers today are making claims about special authority that they have. And they're out to destroy the truth of the word of God, God's authority that we have, that we know. And they're going to do everything they can to lead us away from the truth. Their self-perceived authority makes them indifferent in our day and age to morality. You ought to know that anytime you see a teaching that's different than what we've been taught in the Word of God that is leading people into immorality, free sex, it's okay, you don't need to worry about being married, it's all right, there's something's wrong. Not just immorality, but... An indifference to the needs of people around them. When you find a group of God's people who have been influenced by false teachers, they don't care for one another. That's why Jesus himself said the way that you'll know followers of Jesus is by the love they have for one another. John chapter 13, 34 and 35. But when there are false teachers, there's a lack of that love. There's a lack of, there's indifference to the loving one another. There's an indifference to, to their own greed and desire for money. There's the, an indifference towards the leadership that God has placed in their lives in the church. And there's a, an indifference to God himself. You don't need the word of God. There's enough going on around. You, you have, follow us. We've got the message. And so these false teachers that exist today and that we need to be paying attention to are those, the the, the way of Cain, who are living without faith and love for one another, who are full of greed and who are living in complete and utter rebellion against God and His Word. Stay away. And they're leading others to do the same. And if we begin to find ourselves walking down that road the way of Cain, Balaam's error, greed, and want what we want, or complete rebellion against the leadership that God has placed in his church, we better be concerned so what's the bottom line? Let me give you three quick lessons. Learn from the past. Learn from the past. History is, as you've heard said, don't mean it to be just some cute use, used a lot cliche. History is his story. This is the history of the world as we know it there's all kinds of world histories and american histories and european histories this is the history of mankind god has given it to us it's there for us that's what is and what it does it shows us the sin of man and it shows us the solution in the person of jesus christ that's what the bible is all about from start to finish man is sinful and has separated himself from god by that sin but God, from Genesis chapter 3, began to prepare for restoring man to a right relationship with God. Through the person of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, came to this earth, was born, became a man, so he could go to the cross as a man in our place, die for our sins in our place, and provide forgiveness and make us right before God. That's what the Word of God is about, and we must learn from history. We must learn that God has a plan to overcome sin and to bring us to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, bad company corrupts good character. You say, who who said that? Was it Winston Churchill or Confucius or whoever? No. Paul said it. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Paul says to the Corinthian church, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And let me simply say, stay away from new teaching or revelation. There is no new teaching. We have it all right here. There's nothing different. Nothing has changed. We're sinners in need of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Period. And you can act spiritual all you want. You can try to live a moral life. You can try to live a God-honoring life. You can try to live a life under authority and all the rest of that. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, none of that is anything more than just going through the motions. And going through the motions will not get you to heaven, will not get you forgiven before God. Bad company corrupts good character. Stay away from those that have new teaching or new revelation or a different way of thinking because we have the word of God. Thirdly, contend for the faith. Yes, we've said know your enemy, but I would say to you this morning, more importantly than knowing your enemy, is that you know God's word. That you're reading it, that you're learning it, that you're memorizing it, that you're putting it in your heart, that you're filling your mind, that you're renewing your mind, as Paul says in Romans 12. You're renewing your mind with God's truth. That you put it on the doorposts of your home, as Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy. That you talk about it, that you live it. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you go throughout the day, that it's on your lips, that it's in your heart, you've learned it, you're meditating it, you're using it. That's the power of the Word of God so that you can live that truth. And if we're going to contend for the faith, We need to live the truth of God boldly without shame or fear or embarrassment. We must live the truth of God. Father, use your word in our hearts. We recognize you, God, and your word, the truth that you've given to us, the gospel your church, those who know you are under attack today. God, help us to contend for the faith. Help us to stand strong. Help us to know you and help us to know the word of God, your truth, to stand for it, to defend it, to live it. For the glory of God, for it's in Christ's name I pray.